The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Addressing Unmet Needs in the Management of Schizophrenia and Bipolar Disorder, New and Emerging Therapeutic Options to Enhance Treatment and Maximize Patient Outcomes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash JUV860. Downloadable additional resources are also available. Hi, I'm Alan Tony Amber. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner from Chicago. And today I'm going to be talking to you about addressing the unmet needs in the management of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And we're going to be discussing new and emerging therapeutic options to enhance treatment and maximize patient outcomes. So as we well know, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are both chronic neuropsychiatric illnesses. They are associated with high disease burden, poor quality of life, increased morbidity and mortality. We know that they are at increased risk of homelessness, poverty, and unemployment. And of course, with all of that, poor social support and risk for poor or non-existent health insurance. Many people are surprised to discover the prevalence of schizophrenia, estimated to be between a quarter of a percent and two-thirds of a percent, some estimates as high as 1%, and that means a disease prevalence in the United States somewhere between hundreds of thousands and a million or more people. Very often when people are first studying these figures, they're surprised because they don't see a lot of people with schizophrenia out there. So where are they? They're in the homeless shelters, they're living on the street, they're in nursing homes, and of course, all too often, they are in our jails and prisons. And looking back, I think history will judge us harshly for not taking care of these very vulnerable people. Bipolar disorder is significantly more prevalent, estimated to be about 2.8% in the last year and 4.4% over a lifetime. And of course, why do we worry so much about people with bipolar disorder? They are so much more likely to die by suicide than the general population. There's an increased risk of mortality due to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, fatal accidents, and of course, that life expectancy shortened among people with schizophrenia too. And the estimate overall could be as much as 15 to 20 years over somebody who does not have one of these illnesses. So what are the disease presentations? Schizophrenia has three major primary symptom domains. The positive symptoms with abnormal behavior or experience, hallucinations, delusions, and formal thought disorders. These are the things that allow you to spot a person in a crowd who is having schizophrenia or on the street. These are the ones who wind up being hospitalized. However, once these are brought under control, it's the negative symptoms and the cognitive dysfunctions that prevent people from re-entering society. The absence or diminishing of normal behavior, that blunted affect that makes it hard for them to communicate their emotional and affective life, anhedonia, avolition, they're just not motivated. They find it very hard to make a decision. Difficulties with speech, asociality, they don't want to be around other people. That cognitive dysfunction where it's not only abnormal, but it's increasingly impoverished. Impairment to the domains of memory, attention, reasoning, and decision-making. 
Bipolar, we see those psychotic features sometimes, but the predominant features are mood symptoms rather than thought symptoms. A person may be quietly suffering with bipolar or not so quietly for a long time in their depressed phase. It's those manic symptoms that allow us to pick them out of a crowd or get them hospitalized, frankly. They're extremely high-spirited, grandiose, or incredibly irritable. There's that decreased need for sleep, racing thoughts, increases in risky behavior without regard to consequences. So what do we know? We know that we're actually quite good at treating the positive symptoms in schizophrenia or many of the psychotic symptoms in bipolar where those overlap. We're we're pretty good at getting a handle on mania. We are less good at getting a handle on bipolar depression. And we are really not very good at all on getting a handle on negative symptoms or cognitive dysfunction. So we've been living in the antipsychotic era since the early 1950s with the advent of chlorpromazine. And the first generation, the so-called typical antipsychotics, act almost exclusively as blockers of the dopamine 2 receptor. And with these medications, we saw an increased risk of movement disorders and adverse effects. Newer atypical antipsychotics are also characterized by partial agonism of dopamine 2 and dopamine 3 receptors. And additionally, some of the atypical antipsychotics hit a wide variety of receptors, serotonin 1A, serotonin 1C, histamine 1, alpha 1 and alpha 2 adrenergic receptor blockers, and many more. So how do we choose an antipsychotic for treatment of our patients? Believe it or not, there are over 30 antipsychotics that have come out. How can we possibly decide? Hune's group in Germany did a network meta-analysis taking a look at 32 antipsychotics and trying to break down ones that demonstrated efficacy, but also looked at adverse effects. And we see here that for the overall change in symptoms, clozapine, still the standout of the crowd. The next two, amisulpride and zotapine, probably haven't heard of them because they're not available in the United States. And theothixine, a typical antipsychotic that we just don't think about much anymore. And there are some reasons why it's just not used as it was. And then olanzapine and risperidone. And perfenazine, sort of a transitional med between the typicals and the atypicals. Again, one we don't think about much. So these are the ones that really are the top of the pack for overall change in symptoms. And then what happens, they all pretty much fall in line after that. And now when we go to positive symptoms of schizophrenia, at the top, what we see, risperidone, clozapine, olanzapine, and paliperidone. And then everything falls pretty much in line right after that, starting with Haldol. So now when we look at negative symptoms, it's important to note that none of these do a great job with negative symptoms. Clozapine still leading the pack, followed by olanzapine and acenoprine, and then they all fall in line. Depressive symptoms. Now, this is interesting because if you look at the top, again, clozapine, olanzapine, but now you see some of the newer compounds, aripiprazole, cariprazine, paliperidone, and acenoprine, right? And then after that, they all start to fall in line after that. And as you can see, the effect sizes are not that large. 
So what are the atypical antipsychotics approved for use in bipolar disorder? Probably cariprazine is the newest one to enter the market. And what we see is that only a few of these medications have indications for manic, mixed, and maintenance for bipolar disorder. And then, of course, there is the depressive indication. So interesting, olanzapine is only has the depression indication with fluoxetine. But as we saw in the earlier slide, there's pretty good evidence for its treatment of depressive symptoms. So antipsychotic side effects, central nervous system side effects, sedation, which can be a good thing if our patient is not sleeping, but so often when people are depressed, they're sleeping way too much and they have to be able to get through their day. Extrapyramidal side effects, our old friends, akathisia and tremor, Parkinsonism and dystonias, right? Then there are the hormonal side effects, which can be caused actually by several of these meds, most notably risperidone, that's the one we think about it at the top of that pack, but others do it too. Then there's obesity and metabolic syndrome, and of course, clozapine and olanzapine are quetiapine, risperidone, all big weight gain drugs, but even aripiprazole can do that. And then cardiovascular safety issues, which is one of the reasons why a lot of the typical antipsychotics are not used anymore. So let's take a look at some of these. When we look at weight gain, you know, what we see is that the newer atypical antipsychotics, that's where these rise to the top. So if there was a way that we could have the efficacy of some drugs with the lack of weight gain of other drugs, we would be in good shape. So in this table, what we look at is the surrogate marker of use of anti-Parkinson medication. And what we're really trying to measure here is which medications cause the most EPS. So it's interesting, clozapine is the one that stands out as being the med with the least EPS, right? And as we look at some of the other ones, olanzapine, quetiapine, asenoprine, and then as we move further and further down the scale, there is more and more EPS. So now let's take a look at sedation. And this is where some of the agents, cariprazine, paliperidone, iloperidone, and aripiprazole really show the least amount of sedation. So again, if we could have a med that has some of the efficacy of the older drugs without the sedation, without the EPS, without the weight gain, we would be moving towards kind of an ideal antipsychotic, wouldn't we? So what are the barriers to treatment? We've seen this many times. People don't take their medicines as prescribed. What are the reasons they don't take it? They don't take it because they didn't get a suboptimal response. They have side effects that are intolerable. Sometimes it contributes to their psychiatric or medical comorbidities. Stigmas for sure. And then, of course, lack of support systems, right? So it's hard for patients who are in these financially and socially impoverished situations to do what they need to do. And finally, they just may not be bought in to going through the difficulties of taking these medications enough to be willing to do it anyway. So we've already talked about what we need for our ideal antipsychotic. We need something that is efficacious, well-tolerated, easy to use, and targets the symptoms that we need. It should improve function, right? And we need some new ideas in medications that we haven't had yet. 
well, what if we could take an old medication and make it something that is more useful? Again, olanzapine ranks very high in efficacy for most of the symptom clusters that we're looking at. So in June 2021, there was the approval of a combination regimen of olanzapine and semidorphin. Semidorphin is a novel opioid receptor antagonist. And so uh, this is much the same idea as when we used to use naltrexone to try to mitigate weight gain. And this was studied for trying to mitigate the weight gain problems that would come up with the use of olanzapine. So what did we find? We found that the efficacy was still there, that the olanzapine still did the job. Although both groups gained some weight, the combination group, the olanzapine and semidorphin, gained less weight. They gained less waist circumference. And then in the continuation studies, what we found was that if people were on olanzapine only and then switched into the combination, they did not continue to gain weight or waist circumference. So this is a very interesting idea and certainly is more studied, for instance, than naltrexone. There are some other things that have been looked at as well, like metformin or topiramate, but this is actually an approved treatment that we have here. It should also be noted that like if you were giving a patient naltrexone, they should be alerted and their healthcare providers should be alerted that they are on an opioid antagonist, the mu opioid receptors, and they will need something to unblock that in the event that they need emergency anesthesia. So another attempt to retrofit a good old friend that's efficacious is a new look at lorazodone for patients who have bipolar depression with active suicidal ideation. By coupling it with first NRX100, which is a single dose of ketamine, followed by the ongoing treatment with lorazodone and decyclosterine, which is very interesting that they're trying to increase the activity at the NMDA receptors and produce a synergistic effect. So we've talked about taking old friends and retrofitting them for better performance. So now there's been an attempt to look at novel targets within the use of the framework of the dopamine blockade and to see if we can get, by adding additional receptor sites, better performance. So lumetaparone was the proof of the treatment of schizophrenia in 2019. It has a complex mechanism of action, but notably what it brings to the table that's different is presynaptic partial agonist at D2 receptors along with postsynaptic D2 antagonism. The idea being, if we could hit both of those sites, then we need less postsynaptic D2 antagonism, reducing the side effect profile. Additionally, lumetepirone is thought to have activity via the D1 receptor, and through that activity, it modifies the activity of the glutamate system at NMDA and AMPA receptors. So what we see here is that this is a medication with a good safety profile, no increases in weight, cardiometabolic, endocrine, or extrapyramidal side effects, and sedation taken at night. And weight gain, my goodness, a part of the group actually lost weight taking this medication. 
but it's only available in a single dose, which means if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, there's nowhere to go up. So now let's take a look at departing the dopamine blockade world altogether. And let's look at some of the exciting new frontiers under consideration. So let's start with trace amines. Ulatarant, which is a trace amine receptor one, a TAR1 and a 5-HT1A agonist, showed efficacy for positive and negative symptoms associated with schizophrenia and received breakthrough therapy designation from the FDA. Now, part of the study that was just released in November of 2021 suggested that we saw an efficacy for negative symptoms that we hadn't seen before. So Ulatarant is in phase three trials, and keep your eye on this. Now, a novel target that hasn't been pursued much in the past are muscarinic receptors. And one of the reasons for this is that muscarinic receptors are found all through the body. And if we do things to modulate muscarinic receptors, acetylcholine receptors, then this produces anticholinergic effects. And so one of the things that has been looked at is whether xylomeline, which is a muscarinic receptor agonist, and coupling it with tropsium, the muscarinic antagonist, can enhance cognition and reverse memory deficits. The idea being that xanomeline penetrates into those central nervous system, muscarinic 1, M1, and M4 receptors, and then tropsium, the antagonist, prevents it from having those peripheral side effects. So again, this is an attempt to work with those very difficult to treat cognitive symptoms. In addition to negative symptoms, the medication went from phase two now into phase three. So keep your eye on this mechanism as well. So what we see is that there are a variety of new targets at play. Now, how do we empower patients and improve treatment outcomes with shared decision-making? Let's listen to a video clip from a patient. I think that's a really interesting question because no doctor has ever given me any choice of drugs or described how any of them would feel different if I took a different one or gave me any options. I remember I was in a psych ward one time and first they put me on Abilify, which just seemed to make me really angry, but they didn't seem to care or notice because um, they put me on that. And then we're in a meeting with like the psychiatrist and she just goes, you know, since you've been here, you've only become angrier and angrier. I go, well, how, why aren't you helping me then? And they were just like, well, you, you need to be less angry. Well, why, why am I here then? How are you not helping me? This is somewhere you're supposed to help me. And then when I left there, they gave me Wellbutrin, told me nothing about it. Here they said, well, there's some paperwork you can read all of this, but me being like super undiagnosed ADD, I'm not reading all of that fine print and completely understanding that. I tried to take it when I left. It gave me what I now know of as, was akathasia because nobody would tell me what that was at the time. And then I went to the outpatient, I was trying to explain to that doctor what was going on. She said she had no idea. Call the hospital. I called the hospital. They said, you're not supposed to call us anymore. You're supposed to talk to the outpatient. So if the outpatient's telling me to call them and they're telling me to call them, where am I? And the Wellbutrin went in the garbage. Therefore, I got no help that whole time. I, I do understand how a collaborative relationship with a doctor would be a benefit because then you work together and you're trying to like see what works, what doesn't. Sometimes when you go see your doctor, they can just kind of like measure your mood and see 
what works for you. I remember that, like, you know, I've been fired from almost like every job I've ever had just because I can't stop talking to myself. People think I'm on the phone or I just can't focus sometimes. And I was at like an appointment and I was just kind of just bummed out saying I don't want a job anymore. And he was like, you know, why don't you try this med? It's supposed to make you more motivated. And I was like, okay. And then my life changed for the better. So it was kind of like, I wouldn't say if that's totally collaborative, but it was like he saw my mood, he saw how he could help me, and then he did, and then I was like, wow, that really was helpful. So I think, you know, working with your doctor in some ways and other ways are just, if you just talk more about things, it could actually be a really good thing. So this patient's experience is probably the norm, but it's not optimal, clearly. And some of this is the fragmentation of the healthcare system. Some of this is the drive caused by reimbursement for us to see patients in shorter and shorter periods of time. We are not rewarded for taking the time to educate patients. And yet, medications that go in the trash, symptoms that are not resolved, is that really the kind of medicine we want to be practicing? We need to help patients get to full recovery. And if they are not bought in to what these meds are and what they can do, then we're not going to get anywhere. Shared decision-making is a critical component of recovery-oriented patient care. So what are the roles of a patient and a clinician in shared decision-making? So I think what we need to do is we need to start with the patient. They are the experts on their own lives. They share values and preferences to promote mutual understanding. And they clarify what are they willing to do and what are they willing not to do. And we have to listen to that because everybody's different. If you're a single mother trying to hold a job and manage kids, sedation is probably not an option. If you are somebody who, for whatever reasons, weight gain is not an option, whatever your reason is for that, it's not an option. So we need to figure out how to work with the patient to find out what is their deal breaker and what are they willing to live through to get to the other side, right? And When we give patients back the accountability for their medication and what they're willing to do, we get better results, right? We're the coach. We are not the captain. They're the captain. They take care of themselves. But sometimes, like an athletic coach, if we, the coach will say, okay, you want to win that marathon? You're going to have to do some things and some of them aren't going to be very nice, but I'm going to get you through. And that's how we share our decisions together. They're in charge, we're the coach. So what are the benefits? We know what the benefits are. Quality of life is better because the treatment is more likely to succeed. The patient feels more in charge of what they're doing and they're more bought into it. And they get better results. And part of the reason they're willing to go through side effects is because they're doing it with us. They are not just suffering through it alone. I tell patients, I say suffering is not on the menu. If you have a problem, you get in touch. We're here. Don't suffer. Don't suffer in silence. Don't feel like you have to wait to the next appointment. And you know what? Most of the time they don't call. But when they do, it's because they need to. And that makes all the difference. So what are the barriers to participating? We know that the biggest one is lack of time. And then sometimes we take the paternalistic or maternalistic view. But the patients are children and they don't have the capacity to make these decisions. 
and we have our own treatment preferences. You know, patient will tell us, I've tried that. I don't want it. Okay. Why do we keep trying to convince them? They may not have the support to carry it out, right? And of course, the less experience providers have, the less they're able to really just sit and listen because they're thinking about what they need to accomplish, right? And we all did that as new practitioners. I'm thinking about what's the treatment plan and how am I going to get there? Instead of really sitting back and saying, okay, tell me what you're really willing to do, right? Many times patients have never been taught how to advocate for themselves, short of getting angry, and then they get punished for being angry, right? I thank patients for their anger. I'm glad they tell me when they're angry because then we can work together. And they may be afraid to make the final decision. And I always remind them, it's not the final decision. We have more meds that we can try. And have we given them enough option, really cleared enough space to ask them what they want to do? So we've talked about the individual provider and the patient, but how do we expand that to include the role of the team? So a well-functioning collaborative team models effective communication and provides patient-centered care. So it's very important to involve those other providers because very often what we're doing and what they're doing may conflict with each other. And we may need the cooperation of other members of the team to change meds that they're giving so as to work more effectively or at least not be contraindicated to or synergize poor outcomes with medications that we're giving. We also need to have a culture that prizes our collaboration with therapists, because after all, the therapist is seeing them more than we are, much more than we are. And so the patient will very often talk about side effects with the therapist before they talk to us, because they're afraid to tell us. They want to be good patients. It means that the therapist will often notice changes before we do, because they may see them two or three or four times before we see them again. So it's really valuable if goals and treatment plans can be shared back and forth with other members of the team, and we can refer to what we're planning to do. And along with that, anticipatory plans. It puts the patient so at ease when we not only talk about options, we talk about what happens if those fail. Where are we going to go next? So it's important also to talk about that with our colleagues, you know, and how a treatment failure can allow us to fail forward if it happens, right? Let's talk about safety. So safety is not only something we ask regularly about, but we should be communicating to other members of the team. If we have a patient who's having suicidal issues, we know that that has to be shared with the therapist. And maybe perhaps if the primary care provider is somebody who's really close to the patient, that may be who they call. So this stuff needs to be shared and treated in a team basis. And we need to acknowledge and express appreciation for honesty, both among patients and our colleagues who help manage the illness and engage in treatment. So we really need to have a culture that prioritizes shared decision-making with the patient and with each other, right? And we want to certainly avoid conflicting messages that happen between the different members of the team. So interprofessional approaches to shared decision-making ideally happen when all of the providers are involved. But you know something? In my experience, sometimes just opening the door, picking up the phone and saying, hey, 
can I talk to you about what's going on? Here's my phone number. I want you to let me know when you see something. That makes all the difference. So in summary, this is a very exciting time to be working in psychiatry. One of the things that's really wonderful out there is how many different approaches are being explored, looking at novel targets, not only for medication, but neuromodulation. And today, people want to have a say in their treatment. And in order for us to have them succeed, we need them to be bought in. They need to be willing to go through what we're asking them to go through. And so it comes back down to the fundamentals with our patients, with our colleagues, relationship, relationship, relationship. That's what makes it possible for patients to go through all of these iterations and hopefully find a life that gives them everything that they have been looking for for so long. Thanks for listening. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the American Psychiatric Nurses Association. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash JUV860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Alchemies Incorporated.